1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 to chapter 17, verse 1. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundations at the cost of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, thou shalt be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. All right. Good morning, friends. Uh, today we're beginning our brand new summer blockbuster sermon series, which we decided to shape around uh, the narratives and stories of the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. And we do the summer bro- uh, blockbuster series, rather, as a sort of a, uh, a fun break from a more typical sermon series where we might work through a book in a more strictly uh, expository fashion or through a major theological or biblical theme. Um, and we spent some time rather simply enjoying some of the masterfully crafted stories in the Old Testament in particular. Um, but don't be mistaken, even though this sermon series is structured around uh, the person of Elijah and the story of his life, um, because this is scripture, because this is God's word, uh, these stories are really about God. God uses these historical narratives to convey deep truths about himself and how he relates to humanity um, in such a way that we can actually grasp these complex realities that oftentimes are otherwise uh, lost on us or left in abstract. And so what I want us to see uh, through this series in particular is that God's patience and faithfulness towards a faithless and rebellious people is on full display in the books of the Kings this morning. Um, And for those of you who are familiar uh, with this portion of scripture, that may come as surprising because at a first glance, many of the stories in the books of the Kings come across as bleak and depressing. We see um, the very worst of human nature and depravity and the just judgment that those things deserve. Um, But if we dig a little bit deeper with a view to the overarching story that these stories fit into, uh, we see that what the author is really communicating is that God is in full control of history and that he is simply setting the stage to put his justice and mercy on full display once and for all for the whole world to see. All right, but in order for us to see that clearly, we need to do a quick survey of the biblical uh, context in, uh, around these stories. Um, and we need to do that from two perspectives. Um, first, we need to do it from a zoomed out view of God's whole relationship with his covenant people up to this point. 
And then, secondly, we would zoom in um, for the view of the immediate context of these stories. And so first, let's take that broad, sweeping view um, of God's relationship to Israel up to this point. And obviously, uh, God's relationship with Israel technically starts all the way back at Abraham, but I'm more interested in his relationship with Israel as an established nation. And so we're going to start at the Exodus, where God has miraculously delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and there he establishes them or reestablishes them as his covenant people. He begins to reprogram them and instruct them by the giving of his law or his words. And through them, he shapes them into a people who live in right relationship with him. They were meant to be a people who were identified by their relationship with God. Their way of life was meant to be radically distinctive and countercultural. In Exodus 33, Moses asked God, How shall it be known? that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? They are a people characterized by the fact that their God lives with them and their whole lives revolve around their relationship with him. So in order to facilitate this, God establishes these uh, human offices that are meant to function as uh, the covenant administrators uh, between God and his people. Um, and there are a number of uh, sort of different stages of this because the human officers always fail. And so we start here at Sinai. God um, develops the priesthood, and the priesthood are meant to be specially set apart for this task to lead the people in the daily rhythms of worship and all of life centered around the presence of God among them. And as long as the priests were doing their job, it would be impossible for Israel to forget that they lived every moment of every day in the presence of their holy God. And so you could say a lot was riding on the priests. Um, there's a saying that says, as go the priests, so go the people. This is often true of leadership. And so inevitably, over time, the priestly class became corrupted and compromised. And by the time we get to the, uh, the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, um, we see Eli's sons uh, stealing uh, the best portions of the people's offerings to the Lord and acting in such a way that they display no knowledge of God's word or law whatsoever. They do foolish things like dragging the Ark of the Covenant off into battle against the Philistines as a uh, superstitious talisman of some sort. Um, and for, if you're unfamiliar with that story, this is a spoiler alert, it does not end well. And God could have easily rejected his people at this point on the basis of their repeated covenant violations. But in his inexhaustible patience with them, uh, he chose instead to try a different program. Um, so God established instead the monarchy. And now the king would take up the task of the spiritual leadership of people and of the uh, administration of the covenant. He would keep the priestly line, or the priestly class in line, rather, and the daily life of the people centered around the word and worship of God. So this is now the king's responsibility. And other than the cautionary tale of Saul, the first king, the monarchy actually starts very strong with David and then his son Solomon. They especially... Um, re-establish Israel as a truly distinct people set apart and marked by their relationship with God. 
But as with the priests, as goes the king, so go the people. And late in his life, Solomon gives into temptations to uh, marry and to carry on relationships with foreign women. Um, and in so doing, he invites their pagan uh, religious influence into the worship of Israel. And as a consequence for his action, God divides the kingdom. So Solomon's son uh, is only going to get to keep two of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and his new kingdom is, is going to be uh, known as Judah from this point forward. Um, it's the southern kingdom. Okay? And now the other 12 tribes, um, which from this point forward, this is a chapter 12 of 1 Kings, forward, basically the book of First Kings is concerned almost entirely with this new kingdom. It's the northern kingdom from this point forward referred to as Israel. And from its inception under the first king, Jeroboam I, the northern kingdom is on a steep trajectory away from God. They begin with the syncretistic worship of Solomon's kingdom, gradually giving up more and more of their covenant distinctiveness until we arrive at Ahab in chapter 16, which is where we are picking this story up. We are at a pivotal moment where the kingship has proven itself utterly incapable of keeping Israel properly set apart in relationship to God because they have forgotten his word. In our text today, we're going to see that there is a drought coming. But in reality, there is already a drought in the land. There is a famine of God's word. All the kings have failed to remember that responsibility and privilege go together. And so God is about to change human offices yet again. The task of mediating his covenant relationship to his people is about to shift from the kings to the prophets, the first of which is Elijah. All right. That was a long preamble and probably a lot to take in. So I hope, uh, <laughs> I hope you're able to absorb some of that. Uh, it's recorded so you can come back to it because there's no way I'm going to be able to do that before every sermon in this series. But that is the context of our stories here in 1 Kings. And so um, now we're going to enter into our text for the zoomed-in assessment of the author. Um, he's going to give us an assessment of the state of God's covenant people at Ahab's time, or in Ahab's time. And so this would really be, I guess, the first point of the sermon. If you want to put a name on it, call it the nature of ungodliness. The nature of ungodliness. All right, verse 29, chapter 16, 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So we learn a few things about Ahab right off the bat. Ahab is the son of Omri, uh, who is the king best known for building the fortified city of Samaria, which becomes the capital city of the northern kingdom. And what's important to know about this is that prior to Omri, the capital of the southern kingdom, the capital of Israel, or the, sorry, the northern kingdom, the capital of Israel, had been the city of Tirzah. But what we see starting to come out in Omri and Ahab especially um, is the final stages of forgetting what it means to be the people of God who live under his protection and provision. 
Omri was afraid that Tirzah wasn't a strong or strategic enough position for the capital. And if you don't believe that God is the protector of your people and you think that the welfare of your nation hinges on your own intelligence and planning and strength, then that would be a perfectly rational thought. And to prove that God was absolutely absent from Omri's thinking about this city, he named it after the pagan man he purchased the land from. So Samaria, it's a pagan name, all right? If you're familiar at all with God's interactions with people up to this point in Scripture, you know that names are highly significant. And we'll see that actually later again in our text. And so Ahab here takes up his throne at this fortress, which stands as a monument to human self-sufficiency and total assimilation, rather, with the surrounding culture. Okay? Verse 30 and 31. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal, and worshipped him. Ahab made the rebellion of Jeroboam the first look tame. And now, to get the background on that, Jeroboam the first is the first king of the northern kingdom after the split. And uh, he was also the first king to incorporate bull worship into Israel's religious uh, ritual. Um, and to understand that, we need to look back at uh, chapter 12 of 1 Kings. Um, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. Jeroboam does not like the fact that his people are traveling into the southern kingdom uh, for their worship, right? Uh, his concern is that over time, making this pilgrimage back and forth, eventually their hearts are going to warm to Rehoboam, who's the king in the south, and the kingdom is going to be reunited by God and he's going to be out of the job, or more likely, he would be executed for treason. Okay, and so rather than allow that to happen, he sets up two altars, two worship sites at Bethel and Dan, and he puts a golden calf at each, and he says, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is not a good way to begin a new kingdom. See, Jeroboam was an idolater and judged severely for his actions, but at least he thought he was worshiping Israel's God, even though he was doing it in a terrible way that God had commanded not to. But Ahab marries Jezebel in a political move, and in so doing, he invites her pagan religion into the capital city and into the palace itself. Verse 32 and 33a say that he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Okay, the author seems to suggest that Ahab doesn't waste any time uh, setting up a full-scale temple complex to Baal in the capital city of Israel. We're told later that this temple was fully serviced by 450 full-time prophets of Baal. It's in chapter 18. And Ahab also erected an Asherah pole, right? Which is, uh, Asherah is believed to be Baal's female 
uh, consort. And we also learn in chapter 18 that there were 400 prophets of Asherah as well. So now we have these 850 pagan prophets living in the capital city, worshiping and leading worship. And we find out later that Jezebel had all the prophets of, God of, it, uh, of the God of Israel either murdered or run out into hiding. Baalism has been installed now as the official state religion of Israel. And so we need to talk a little bit about Baal. What is Baalism? Who is Baal? Baal is the Phoenician god of fertility and weather. It's believed that uh, rain and life and the fruitfulness of crops all depended on him. And so the Canaanites thought that they needed to appease him in order for their crops to grow successfully. And the appeasement of Baal or the worship of Baal involved many things that God had expressly forbidden, uh, not the least of which was cult prostitution and child sacrifice. So Ahab marries this Canaanite woman and becomes a dutiful servant of Baal. How did he not see this coming? When God is instructing his people on how to live when they enter the land, he says this. This is back in Deuteronomy 7. You shall not intermarry with them, that is the people of the land of Canaan, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Ahab had completely forgotten about God's word, even while he was proving it to be true with his own life. 33b, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The author stresses that if God ever had a reason to turn his back on his people and unleash the full fury of his wrath on them, it was now. And then we arrive at verse 34. 34. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abraham, his son, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. At first, um, at a first glance, this kind of seems like an unrelated incident or a misplaced verse. But the author is actually, he's told us about Ahab's acts um, specifically, and now he's giving us a taste of what's going on in Ahab's kingdom. Uh, because if anyone is rebuilding Jericho's walls, uh, it is either at Ahab's command or at least with his blessing, and it's certainly going to be on the government dime. Um, but what does it mean that Heel rebuilt the walls of Jericho at the cost of his sons, and that this was according to the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua. In order to understand this, uh, we have to go back to the beginning of Joshua and see um, 
Jericho was the first city that God gives into the hands of the Israelites when they enter the land of Canaan, right? And when the walls miraculously come tumbling down before them and God gives the city to his people, Joshua pronounces a curse at that moment. This is Joshua 6, 26. Joshua laid an oath on them, that is the people of Israel, saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. This illustrates how far Israel had drifted from the word of God. They had forgotten everything that God had instructed them when he first gave them the land. And so what does it mean? At the cost of his firstborn, at the cost of his youngest son, Abram and Segub. Well, there's a lot of archaeological evidence that points to the fact that there was something, a, a practice in Canaan uh, called the foundation sacrifice. And archaeologists have figured this out from a few different things, but not the least of which is the discovery of skeletal remains in the foundations of bridges and important buildings. And it's believed that the builders would make a human sacrifice as they lay the first part of the foundations uh, in order to appease the gods and ask for protection on their building enterprise. And then again, when the building was finished, that's what it means when he, when he sets up its gates, it means it's done. They would then have another sacrifice as a dedication or a thank you um, for the gods having allowed the project. And this is a tragic tragic illustration of how far Israel has fallen in its idolatry. All right, Leviticus 20. This is God laying out the code of holiness, right? He has entered into covenant with people. He's telling them how you should live. Leviticus 20, he says, any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Heal brought the sentence of death on himself. But more than that, God goes on in Leviticus to say that if any uh, if any of his people turn the other way and refuse to carry out this sentence on the guilty party, that they become complicit in it and likewise guilty. All of the nation of Israel stood guilty of Heel's abomination. They had all earned the sentence of death for themselves. And so what we see is this inevitable slide that begins with tolerance. They come into the land. God says, wipe out all of the pagan worship and idolatry, all of their altars and their Asherah poles and their um, idols. Wipe it all out. Remove it from the face of the earth. But it begins with tolerance and allowing that to stay. Then it morphs into a, a complacence where they begin even to intermarry with these pagan people and expose themselves to influence of these religions. 
Then it becomes acceptance where suddenly you no longer have a moral uh, objection anymore to any of these religions and you kind of just, hey, live and let live. Everybody can do their own thing. And finally, it ends in participation with their covenant identity all but erased. That's where Ahab's kingdom is at. And from our perspective, it is easy to be disgusted at the state of apostasy in the northern kingdom. But what I want us to consider is that at least some of that disgust is because we are looking at it from our modern perspective. right? We would never be in danger of setting up temples to foreign gods and certainly not sacrificing our children to them. But that's at least in part because nobody does those things in the modern Western world. Israel was acting pragmatically within the cultural context of their day. They had simply become a reflection of the world around them at that time, as barbaric as it was. But as the church, as God's covenant children today, we too are called to the same sort of covenant, uh, radical covenant distinctiveness from our surrounding culture. But do we really look that different from our non-Christian neighbors in our day-to-day lives? Um, I'm part of a book club this summer, studying Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. And uh, he posits the thesis that um, the root of all sin is ungodliness. And then he unpacks that a little bit. And I'm going to read this quote to you from the book. He says, Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. You can readily see then that someone can lead a respectable life, at least from the outside looking in, from a human standard, can read a respectable, lead a respectable life rather and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. They may even attend church for an hour or so each week, but then live the remainder of the week as if God doesn't exist. They're not wicked people, but they are ungodly. Living life without reference to God. That was the root of Israel's sin. And it is the root of ours as well. And while we ponder that one more note about Ahab, the fact that he set up shop in Samaria, and the fact that he married Jezebel, the unhinged, and the fact that he sanctioned the rebuilding of Jericho's walls were all things that he would have argued he did for the good of Israel. He was just trying to ensure the safety and prosperity of his kingdom. Is that something that is really so hard for us to relate to? If we are honest, aren't wealth and security... Sorry some of the things that most easily blind us to God's word as well. Even if we pay lip service to living by the hand of God, don't we often make purely pragmatic decisions about such things without diligently seeking God's will? And if we aren't subjecting entire spheres of our lives to God's word and will, are we really that different from Israel? Um, Pew Research, uh, every year they do a a massive poll across America um, on the religious beliefs of Americans. And obviously the most recent data available is for uh, 2019. And in 2019, 
Pew found that 65% of Americans self-identify as Christian. Uh, but there's another group, Barna Group, um, who also does polls in America about religion, but they come at it from a very different angle. Uh, the Barna Group does their poll every year about people's, uh, basically trying to decipher people's level of engagement with the Bible. Um, and in 2019, Barna reports that 48% of Americans are what they call Bible disengaged, which means that they report little to no interaction with the Bible at all, and that its teaching has minimal to no impact on their life. But there's no overlap in those numbers. 65% say they're Christian, 48% have no use for the Bible. That means that 17% who identify as Christians in America have no use for God's word. And on the other end of the spectrum is the category that they call Bible-centered. And this is the only category of people who uh, would agree to a statement that included that the Bible impacts their decision-making in day-to-day life. This category made up 5% of the total population. And so if 65% of the population saves are Christian, it's safe to say that the 5% that would call themselves Bible-centered are within that 65%. And so if we transfer the numbers over, we find that 92% of Americans who identify, self-identify as Christian do not evaluate their life decisions in light of God's word. Ahab didn't get to plead ignorance because it was his responsibility to know the word of God and to see to it that his people knew it as well. Security and prosperity were God's department. And the same goes for us today. Look, there are more copies of the Bible in circulation today than any other book in history by a long shot. And yet there is a drought or a famine of God's word in the land and has resulted in extreme spiritual malnourishment. Enter Elijah. All right, and this is my second point. I know you're probably looking at your watches and being worried, but my second and third are shorter. They're uh, linked. They were at, at one point, they were one point, and I split them into two. So we'll keep going here. Um, Enter Elijah, the consequences of ungodliness. This is point two, the consequences of ungodliness. 17 verse one, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe of Gilead, in Gilead rather, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, this has to be up there with the most unceremonious and abrupt character introductions in the Bible, right? <laughs> Elijah the Tishite of Tishbe and Gilead says to Ahab, we have no idea where he came, well, well we know he came from this area, but um, he, he just, he's just there. He's suddenly on the scene, and he somehow has an audience with Ahab the king. Scholars know virtually nothing about Tishbe. That's what I was trying to get at and saying we don't know where he's from. We aren't even sure if it's the name of a town or if it is the name of some sort of a subgroup in Israel. And Gilead itself was just a, a region of hill country east of the Jordan uh, that was home to various nomadic groups throughout this time period. 
Um, and so the author could very well have introduced Elijah as the man from nowhere, right? And uh, the point seems to be that he had no pedigree to lean on. He had no um, human claim to authority that Ahab should recognize. His only qualification is in his words, in that he says that he stands before the true God of Israel who lives. And I mentioned... Uh, the importance of Hebrew names before, and Elijah is no exception. His name is his other qualification. His name is, my God is Yahweh. That's what Elijah means. Okay, and so now this man, whose very name means, my God is Yahweh, confronts the king, whose every action proclaims, my God is Baal. You know, in literary terms, Elijah is Ahab's foil. Right, a foil is a, a person or thing that contrasts for the purpose of emphasizing or enhancing the qualities of another. Ahab has completely forgotten God's word, but Elijah knows God's word, and so he embodies God's word. Just listen to the way, uh, to the wording in his announcement to Ahab that it, it would not rain again. There would be neither do nor reign these years except by my word, he says. Except by my word. He's speaking for God. And Elijah is not being presumptuous. Elijah simply knows the word of God that well. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Again, before they enter into the land, God tells his people, there is a list of blessings you will receive for covenant obedience, and then there's a list of curses that you will receive for covenant disobedience. Deuteronomy 28 says this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. And the Lord, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. See, God would not be God if he were not true to his own word. This drought was the inevitable con consequence, rather, of Israel's godlessness. And the drought is particularly fitting because it sets up an epic contest between God and Baal to see who is really the life-giving Lord. If Baal is truly the giver of rain and fertility in the land, Israel has nothing to worry about. However, if that is actually the domain of the living God, they are in for a very long, very hard lesson. And I just want us to, to look also at the totality of this drought. He says, neither do nor rain, and that's significant. That's significant. God's not going to withhold only rainfall, but even the dew. Listen, Samaria, the capital city, was on a hilltop halfway between the mountains and the sea. It was very vulnerable to drought. But Ahab's summer palace, where, which is the setting of most of the rest of this story for Ahab, is in the Valley of Jezreel. And the reason for this is because even during the annual dry season, the, the, the local climate and geography uh, work together to somehow produce um, a thick blanket of dew every morning that trickles down the hills into the valley, uh, creating the most fertile swath of farmland in all of Israel to this very day. 
So Ahab would normally have been insulated from the effects of the drought and would have still been able to grow fresh crops right through a drought um, at his summer palace. But if God withholds even the dew, then this threat is personal to Ahab. He's going to suffer right along with the rest of his people. Without rain or dew, the ground would indeed be turned to iron, and there would be no crops. Without crops, there could be no life. And this was the just consequence of their faithlessness. They had been fairly warned. Israel broke covenant in a big way. God had every right to starve them to death and be done with them according to the terms of the agreement that they had entered into with him. But that's not what's going on here. If that were the case, why bother sending Elijah at all? Why not just shut off the rain and be done with it? Point three, the antidote for ungodliness. And this arises more implicitly from verse one. The Lord remembers Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple back in chapter 8, where Solomon prayed this. This is chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, okay, Solomon is anticipating that this day is coming. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to them as an inheritance. And Solomon's prayer is just, it's based entirely on God's promises in Scripture. His promises of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Solomon is simply praying God's own promises back to him because he knows them intimately as the rightful king of Israel should. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. The consequences for their godlessness are meant to lead them to repentance. God's people may have turned their back on him, but he hasn't turned his back on them. With Elijah's arrival, we see hope breaking in. We see the gospel breaking in. This is God's fatherly discipline of his children. And fatherly discipline is always meant to be corrective and restorative, not merely punitive. The writer of Hebrews helps us understand this dynamic a little better. He says, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
God disciplines those he loves for their good. And the same is true for us. Like Israel, God has been really, really good to Christians in the West for a long, long time. We've enjoyed the blessings of peace and prosperity. And in return, many of us have taken it all for granted and forgotten how desperately we need him, that we exist in a state of perpetual fragility and total dependence on his provision provision and protection. So here's a thought I couldn't shake while I was preaching the sermon. I'm, I'm looking at this drought. I'm looking at how God's using it to shake his people and to expose their ungodliness and to get them to lean on him again and see how desperately they need him. And I couldn't help but think, you know, what if, what if we as God's people interpreted COVID-19 this way, right? What if God is, is attempting to discipline us in his fatherly way for losing our sense of dependence on him and neglecting his word? Because if that's even a possibility, we would be wise to respond to it as though it were. Remember, the writer of Hebrews says, endure hardships as discipline. And the writer of James, James himself, (laughs) says, count it all joy when you suffer trials of various kinds. He's not not, uh, separating the different kinds and saying, well, this one's discipline and this one's just a random mishap in your life. He's saying as God's children, as believers, interpret it all as God's discipline. Assume that God is trying to teach you something through your trials. Assume that he's trying to expose something in you and he's trying to guide you back to him. In what ways have we become dependent, more dependent on the bales of our culture than on God? To borrow from Jerry Bridges again, um, one of the respectable sins that seems to be characteristic, certainly in my experience of the conservative church in the West, is a pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. And the Bible does absolutely command us to work if we want to eat. That's true. But it is a serious error to believe even for a second that the affluence and success that we enjoy is merely a result of our hard work and ingenuity. Maybe we've been lulled into believing that cultural lie. Maybe we've Christianized it a little bit, but it's there. And as we feel the pressure of the economic realities that this virus is Uh, bringing about and our government's response to it is bringing about. And again, I don't want to minimize the legitimate hardship that this will and continue to bring, that this will bring, has bring, and will continue to bring. Sorry. But what if this is God's gentle, fatherly hand calling us back to true dependence on him for our daily provision? Are you being crushed by your hardships or are you being trained by them? 
God doesn't want to crush you with your circumstances. And we can know this for certain because just as Elijah, the anonymous prophet from nowhere, uh, unceremoniously arrived uh, on the scene to restore God's people in Ahab's day, so 900 years later, an anonymous Messiah from a backwater town called Nazareth came onto the scene to accomplish that restoration of God's people once and for all. The full weight of God's fury and wrath for our ungodliness fell on him. He was crushed, so we will not be crushed. He was the only man to ever live a truly godly life. He is the antidote for our ungodliness. Repent and receive his righteousness and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness and for your patience towards us and for your fatherly love and your gentleness even when you discipline us. Lord, we repent of our sin of ungodliness, whether obvious or subtle. We confess the many ways that we have grown comfortable with certain ungodly behaviors. Lord, we repent for the ways we've tolerated and become complacent and accepted and participated in the sins of our culture. Lord, help us to live lives that acknowledge our total dependence on your provision and your protection every day. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Amen.